Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. Hello and welcome to my latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, my podcast series where I get the opportunity to have lengthy interviews with some of the most interesting people that I can find. And it's all done in connection with Strategic Power Connect, so thank you to it again for its assistance in this project. Now, today's guest is one of the most influential women in sport, not just in Irish sport, but international sport, because of her very senior role with FIFA. And she has an extraordinary story to tell of working her way up in a male-dominated sport to become one of the most influential Irish people involved in football. Uh, This was recorded back in the summer before the Women's World Cup took place in Australia where of course Ireland were competing. So there's a bit of reference to that in this particular podcast but that doesn't really matter I think. It's not a question of wanting to discuss how the Irish team performed in Australia. It's more about the growth of football for women, the role of women in football and working in men's football, the people that Lisa Fallon has worked with, particularly the likes of Arsene Wenger. This woman works at a very, very top level and her childhood obsession with football has really paid off for her, as well as being somebody really, really good to chat to, which I hope you're going to find as you enjoy this latest edition of Magnified. Just tell us a little bit about this role that you have with FIFA, because I think we've all become familiar with you in recent years as a coach and an analyst working with teams. So what are you doing for FIFA? So um, it's it's actually a really unique role. I was with the Galway United men's team as their head coach in 2021 when this role came up. And um, I had quite a few conversations with Steve McLaren, who was the one that originally spoke to me about this role. Um, and was this before you went back to Manchester United? Yes. So Steve was the, the head of the technical study group at that time um, before he took the role with Manchester United. So he had phoned me and, and spoken to me about this this particular role and um, it was it, it was quite I thought it was really interesting. So basically Arsene Wenger is the chief of global football development division in FIFA and then we have like the high performance department and we have a massive performance analysis and insights department and and basically what this group does is you go to every world cup and you watch the games and we analyze them technically tactically physically and and from a data perspective um the fifa football language has been developed so um this was again one of arsene wenger's big projects where it could be really clear what each term in football meant so if people want to see what is the language what does a a line break mean you can go there and see exactly what it means what does an offer to receive the ball mean you can go online and see exactly what it means so there's real clarity about what each thing means football is the universal sport in many respects so this is actually making sure that you have a universal language for it yes Yes. Um, So because in different cultures and in different parts of the world, the terminology can be different. So this is just to be quite clear, the interpretation of what something means or the perception of what it might mean can be different. So this was just to align it. Now, this work had all kind of been well, it was well on its way by the time I joined. Um, So basically, the each game is coded by the team of analysts, um, there's 22,500 data points per game. So they code not just the players in possession, but a lot of what they do out of possession, which is new. That that hasn't really been done before. Um, and when you think about the fact that players often only would have the ball at their feet for less than two minutes in a game, what are they doing for the other 92 minutes so um so this that that was part of what he wanted to to analyze what are teams doing when they don't have the ball 
um, so that you can combine. So the, the so that's the analysis part of it. And then we have the technical study group. So in this group, we have coaches, ex-former players, um, and we watch the games technically and tactically. So what are we seeing? Um, and then does the data align or does it conflict? Does the data spot something that the eyes don't see? Does the data back up what you're seeing? Um, and then, so we analyze the games from, from that perspective. So you're getting both perspectives because sometimes the data can't explain certain things. It, that's only the coach's eye or the former player's eye. That's technical stuff that the data can never pick up. So what we do then is after the tournaments and during the tournaments, we meet and we identify what are the trends that are happening in the game, technically, tactically, physically. And then what, as a result of that, what are the future trends likely to be? How do you coach what's happening in the game now? Um, and then what does world class look like? So when you deliver that to the 211 member associations throughout the world, they can benchmark themselves off what world class looks like. And then that helps them to develop their player pathways, talent development pathways and coach development, coach education. Um, so the, the information and it also impacts on refereeing as well. So the information that we collect and gather then gets put into reports um, and that was part of my responsibility for this World Cup was to collate that report and um, the post This is the one the, the men's World Cup in Qatar yeah. recently so um, to put that together um, working with the massive team and um, and then we delivered that back to the coaches in um, the start of May the 32 head coaches from the World Cup deliver that back to them and um, talk to them and then after that, I got to sit down with 10 of the coaches, so Lionel Scaloni, Didier Deschamps, Gareth Southgate, to talk about the trends, how they see the trends, how they impact on how they coach, what um, some of the decisions that they made during the World Cup, their tactical and technical approaches, how they adapt their systems, how they manage people, how they manage their teams. And then we deliver that information out to help develop the standards of coaching around the world. Um, and we do that for under 17s, under 20s and senior level in both men's and women's. Um, so last year I would have been at um, in the Club World Cup um, in, I think it was Abu Dhabi. Then we were in Costa Rica for the Women's Under 20 World Cup in August. We were in India for the Women's Under 17 World Cup in October and then Qatar. And now obviously this year we've had the Men's Under 20s in Argentina. We have the Women's World Cup now and then the Men's Under 17s is later this year. So you also look at how does what does under 17 look like? This is a big all part of the, the project that the, the whole group and the whole across a couple of departments are looking at. What does under 17 lo look like? What, are, what do you need to do with players to get them to under 20 level? What does under 20 level look like? And that way as well. And then the tournaments are analysed in a linear way as well. So what did it look like four years ago? What does it look like now? And yeah, so I, th I think we're getting a bigger picture um, because, you know, when you're a coach... You're working with the, the players and the staff that you have and also you're working with the resources that you have. And there isn't equity across the world. Um, and even in certain leagues, there's not equity about, you know, what you have and the resources you have to to do that work with your team and prepare them. So, um, so this information is really to make things a little bit more equitable. Um, and I think, you know, the overall aim is to make countries and member associations and, and clubs as well more competitive get more people into the highest level of the game increase the standard at the highest levels of the game and the the entry levels and then therefore as a result to make the tournaments more competitive so that more countries going there have a, you know a chance of actually competing to win um, rather than just participating. This is very much a full-time job for you now, isn't it? Yeah, so I've been pretty much full-time now since I started. I think I started in December 2021, November, actually it was probably November um, 2021. And within, I think within six days, I was in Wales for a week and then we were straight out to Qatar for the Arab Cup, um, which was... Um, a tournament uh, kind of in the stadiums and all that, almost a rehearsal for 
what the World Cup would look like the following December. Um, but are you missing the day-to-day involvement with teams which you'd had for the previous decade or more? Yeah, it's funny because you're right. I was, I suppose, for nearly 12 years, I was day-to-day and it becomes relentless and, you know, it becomes you get a real rhythm in your life of, you know, training, games, you know, the work that you do in between those games and, and, and the, the preparation for the training sessions. So it is really different and that was kind of probably one of my concerns about it because I was really doing a job I loved at Galway United um, and I really felt we were making progress with the team at that time Um, and just to have you know this one but what I did I love learning I I never want to plateau I never want to you know I I, I can get bored kind of doing the same thing so I, I have this kind of hunger internal hunger to always be better at the end of every day than I was when I got up that morning or, or to know something that I didn't know before um, and I've a real you know professional and personal commitment to that so um, this role I felt was so unique in that it would give me access to a level of the game that I to be honest with you never even dreamed I could have. How many people are involved in doing what you do? Well in the team I'm the only one that does what I do so um, everyone has a different role so you have um, say Arsene is is the lead. This is Arsene Wenger the former Arsenal manager. Yeah and then we would have a head of performance and a, tech, a performance analysis lead then we would have data scientist data um, engineers um, we have two analysts that come to the tournaments with us and they cut the clips that the the coaches and managers um, identify during the game or clips that we want to use as examples, good examples of the topic that we're, or the theme or the trend that we're, we're, we've identified. Um, and then we have um, myself and then there would be another guy from the training centre, Arna Barres. Um, he comes to some of the tournaments, not all of them. Um, and then we have um, Pascal Zuberbuller is the goalkeeping export, expert and he's now the, the kind of technical study group lead. And then for each tournament, we bring in four or five coaches or ex-players, but coaches or ex-players who've played in that tournament. So for the women's under 20s, we bring coaches and ex-players who played in the women's under 20s. For the men's World Cup, we bring in players and coaches who've been involved in the men's under so it's always really specific so that you're bringing in people who have the the right lens of the team that you're in how many other women are there um generally on the ground i i'm the only one um which you're used to at this stage probably are you yeah yeah look i mean there's a big support team as well that don't necessarily come to the tournaments and they would be working remotely or from different parts of the world as well. Um, but yeah, look, it's it's something, Matt, I'm, 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 I'm accustomed to now. Like it's been like all the way through my coaching, my coach education. I was generally the only female on the courses or one of two, you know. Um, and then in most of the team environments I've been in, there were never really any other females. But it didn't bother me. Like, and I, do you know what? I think once you're focused on doing your job and you don't internalise that whole thing about being female, you know, my, my, my role was to be there and, and do a job. And that's what I always did. Well, we'll get back to that in a moment because I am interested in developing that with you. But I've done a little bit more. How did you end up getting this job anyway? Um, so they, we had a number of conversations and I was kind of going, well, I don't know. You know, I, I felt I felt when I had the Galway United job, I felt... You know, I was there for the long haul. You know, I really saw it as a a three-year project. Um, And I felt, you you, you know, you need three years. The the club had just gone full-time in in the the first year that I was there. And we had difficulties with, you know, we had with COVID players. We didn't have access to a gym and you'd makeshift gym. So I felt it slowed us down in terms of the work we wanted to do with the players. But by the summer, it start, we started to be able to get to where we wanted to be. Um, and plus, they, had, they were starting to make that transition because tra- making a transition from part-time football to full-time, it's a, it's a lifestyle change, not just a football change. But, but sorry, how did it come about in the first place? Did Arsene Wenger approach you about this or did you know him? No, I, no, I didn't. Um, it was... 
it was more Steve McLaren was more the catalyst. Um, I became aware of the role, I guess, initially through the League Managers Association in England. I'm I'm a member of the League Managers Association, um, and I, I suppose it was it first came onto my radar through that, and then, um, and then Steve McLaren had contacted me, and um, I suppose. We had a few conversations, like I said to see Steve, you know, look, I, I really feel I need to stay where I am. I was really invested in the project and I really wanted to get Galway, you know, I really wanted us to get the club promoted. Um, and so I, I was mentally, I was completely invested in where I was. And, um, and then this was kind of towards the end of September, October, um, in that season and you're kind of coming into the run in and, and you just missed out on promotion didn't you well, we were still in season at that stage so um, I was really a, of, of, of the kind of mindset of you know look let's talk about this maybe at the end of the season or whatever so look we had a few conversations and then <laughs> I'll be honest with you it sounded too good to be true um, and generally I find that when it does sound too good to be true it generally is um, so um, but but look they were they were really professional um, and they you know, gave me a great insight into what the role would be. And I knew that there was an opportunity because it was a brand new role. Um, there would be an opportunity to go in and, and kind of mould it and, and, you know, make it grow and and that. And it, it just, it, I suppose, the more I, I talked to them about it, the more it started to grow on me. And I started to see it with, a you know, through a bigger picture lens that I realised it would, you know, you could actually this project could actually make a real difference. Um, and so I really started to buy into it. And then I had to, you know, make a decision and, you know, we got to the nitty gritty of it, I, I guess. And and then, you know, I spoke to my family and the people who are really close to me and explained to them about the, the role and what it would involve. And, you know, everyone was like, you know, you have to do this. You You, you absolutely have to do this. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 in, in the end then I, I decided, look, I'm going to be brave here and I'm going to, I'm going to do it. So, so you're working directly to Arsene Wenger. I'm, I'm interested in him because I've had the opportunity to interview him once and it was over Zoom uh, during COVID and it was a 20 minute interview and it was a real eye opener because sometimes sports people, particularly in football, are quite shut and defensive when it comes to answering questions and can be quite cliched and give you sort of the expected. I couldn't get over just how open he was and how engaged he got with the questions. What sort of person is he like? Because I suppose we would have formed impressions of him watching him over the years with Arsenal has been perhaps at times doer and aggressive. Well, I mean, from my experience, he is... He's one of the most unique people I've ever come across in my life. He's a person that actually really genuinely inspires me. I love how he thinks about the game. Um, I love how I love how he rationalizes things or applies thought processes to different situations. And you know, he's very open when we have our discussions. He's very open in how he talks about things. Um, and he, he, what I love actually about him is that the way he challenges your thinking. So if you have an idea, he's straight on it and he wants to develop that idea. Do you know, he's so, and he gives you great confidence to, to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's a, you know, he's a real visionary because sometimes, you know, even in football and as a coach, you, you know, when you're developing, you, you get your kind of your, your thought processes and your principles and the way you want to play and you kind of hone in on that and you try and perfect it. Um, and then when you have it perfected, you have to learn to adapt to it because the teams you're playing against adjust to what you're doing. And then they ask, they ask more questions of you technically and tactically. But what I love about him is he sees things before and before you see them, you know, he he really sees things into the future and what things could be. Um, and I love that about him, um, that he's not limited by the way things are. He he consistently challenges to think about the way they could be. 
and why couldn't why couldn't they be um you know and and i can see very clearly how he inspired arsenal to do that invincible season the year before he planted the seed didn't you know it's not been done before even the even those players doubted it um that it could be done but yet the following and just year, remind they did people it. that's going unbeaten for the season Yes, so a whole Premier League season without without losing a game, um, and you know he he has that ability to inspire that in you, that even though you might, oh, I'm not sure if it can be done, and he's like, well, why not? Of course it can be done, and and I love that about him. I, I really love that about him, um, and. Um, you know, I've learned a lot working with him and, and through being in the group and, you know, this, the discussions that we have um, with all the coaches, you know, at all levels of the game, in men's and women's game. I've learned so much from being in those environments, but also from being in different countries and experiencing football in different cultures um, and what it looks like in different parts of the world. It's really challenged my own thinking about the game and, and also challenged how, you know, the way you judge the game um which for me it's been such an eye opener i've learned so much and look you know i'm sure if the day comes where i do go back onto the grass um it's uh you know i, I i'm sure i'll be i'll be a different coach um as a result of the experiences i've i've picked up over the last 2 years for sure you played top level yourself for a while in england before you got injured so then when you went to coaching, why have you spent the bulk of your time in men's football rather than in women's football, having come from that playing background? Yeah, it's, it's um, it, like it wasn't, it wasn't contrived or it wasn't um, deliberate. It was just, it was actually just the way it worked out. You know, I was a radio reporter, Matt. I, sure, you know, I know, I remember working with you. <laughs> you know, like I was, I was out asking the questions, like, but like when I was, when I was reporting, I always yearned for it. Like I always yearned to be, you know, closer to the game. And, and you know, as uh, it's well documented, like when I was a kid, I always wanted to work in football and I thought radio reporting was the only way I could. Um, so, but it was through interviewing people that and asking them about their tactical decisions and things, you know, people, I suppose I was maybe spotted for, a potential in me was spotted for a role that I didn't even know existed. I didn't know teams had opposition analysts. Um, and uh, so that's where you go and you watch the games of the opposition team. How do they play? How do they set up? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses, both in possession, out of possession and at set pieces? So and was it Michael O'Neill who started you doing that? Yeah. So inadvertently, I guess, Michael O'Neill and John Caulfield, similarly around the same time, John Caulfield, think was involved with Avondale and if they had to play at the club in Cork yeah so if they were playing a team in Dublin he would give me a buzz in the intermediate cup say he would say would you go down and have a look at them and just let me know what 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 are they like and um I mean we're going back to 2010 here 2011 um and similarly then the opportunity came up to um do some stuff with um Michael O'Neill and then when he got the Northern Ireland job he asked me to go in and do initially it was actually motivational videos for the team. Um, and then it progressed to filming. Well, I was filming the training then anyway. Um, and then it kind of, you know, progressed to opposition analysis. And, you know, it just, you know, once you're in the environment and you're, you're learning to do new things or you're doing things and they spot that you can do them, you get the opportunity to, to do the, that bit more. So, um, so that opportunity came up and that was really good for me because at the same time I was with Cork City. So at that time I was kind of at the top level of the game in Ireland, but the international exposure was giving me a lens or, a, a, you know, I was getting to see at, the game at a, at a time, different level. At a time when Northern Ireland were going very well also, getting to the European Championship finals in 2016, the same as the Republic did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was the, I think that was the first time in their history that they qualified for the European Championships. So, um, oh, sorry, it, was that 2012 or 2016? It was the, it was 2016. 2016, yeah, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it was such a, but that stage we had had a, a World Cup qualifying campaign um, and it was, I suppose, what I was learning, like, you're at the top level of the game in Ireland working, I mean, Cork, everybody knows the Cork City and Dundalk rivalry at that time was absolutely incredible. I mean, both sets of, of you know, 
teams, you, you ate, slept and breathed it. Every morning when you got up, the first thing you could think about was how do we catch them? <laughs> you know, so it was, it was like, it was just, it was part of your, the fabric of your being. Um, and it was just, it was, it was the most incredible journey. And I think both teams really drove each other and drove the standard in League of Ireland um, at that time. Um, and it was a brilliant time. But for me, getting the exposure with the Northern Ireland team was, was really vital because I got to see the next level. So when you're at the top of the game, that's where you're in danger maybe of plateauing um, and whereas you know you'd be working with Cork City and we might be playing Dundalk or Derry or whoever um, Shamrock Rovers and then you know the, that weekend then I was looking at okay we're going to be playing Portugal and we're going to be up against Ronaldo um, so and even being pitch side for those games the way you can watch and you can see the way these players move. So what is it about them that makes them at that next level, that aura, the physicality, how they interact in the duels on the pitch, the speed they can move the ball at, the techniques that they use, um, how they get out of intense duels, like even just by watching the game at that level and how these top level players do it. I was learning so much um, and then you're able to bring that back. So I think some of that knowledge really benefited me when we went into European competition. So I was able to, you know, that was probably a strength I had in analysing the European teams because during that time we did quite well. Um, you know, particularly I think it was 2016 when we had beaten Linfield BK Hacken, which was the, the probably the biggest shock in Europe that night. Um, and then we played KRC Genk and they went on to the quarterfinals of the Europa League that year. Um, they beat us 1-0 over. And Who were you with at that stage? Cork, Cork City, City. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so like I said, it was, it was really interesting um, being at th- that level because it just made me see the next level of the game. If you go from a League of Ireland team which might be dominant that you have a lot of possession and are used to playing in a certain way suddenly if you play in a European match it's entirely different yeah. because you're playing at a much bigger level so that requires an enormous change doesn't it yeah. in the way that you play to adapt to something that's entirely different. Yeah and it's funny because it, it was it, you talk about things happen in cycles that was actually a question I asked Michael O'Neill back in 2011 when they were playing Flora Tallinn in the Champions League qualifiers and then all of a sudden in 2016 I'm working with a team trying to help them prepare in that way um, where there were some teams we felt we could play a little bit more of our attacking game um, and sometimes you had to think about you know sometimes you'll have to pick your moments in the game to do it to go after them aggressively because you're not going to be able to do it full on like when we were playing AEK Larnaca 40 degrees of heat Cork City were a high pressing team at that stage you have to pick your moments so you, you, I really learned about managing the game and tactically how and when um, you might do certain things and what were the opposition managers inclined to do and what level of predictability was there in like if you do this you can see that they do that that so then picking the time so that you can educate the players to know when the moments are but you're such a football person how did you get involved then with Gaelic football with Jim Gavin and the Dubs um yeah it was look I was always uh, a Dubs fan when I was growing up um and uh and a passionate Dubs, you know, part of my radio reporting days, you know, we would have I would have covered a lot of the the Dublin uh, football and and hurling. Actually, I, I love the hurling as well. Um, so I got, I got a call. I think it was when was it? it was just it was I think it was November. 2017 so Cork City we had just won the league and we were I think probably the week before the the FA Cup FAI Cup final um, and Northern Ireland we were preparing for the playoff game the World Cup playoff game against Switzerland and the, I got a, a text from Jim Gavin to see could we meet for a cup of coffee um, so I didn't know what it was about. It was very random. Um, at first, I thought it was someone winding me up, but then I realised his number was still in my phone, actually, from years previous when I was doing the reporting work. So um, 
so yeah, I met him. I, I, it was actually really bad because I was like, well, yeah, look, that'd be great, but I, I can't do it for about three weeks because I've got these games coming up. So um, I was like, so cheeky, like, but um, but anyway, we met up then um, in the November and we had coffee and um, he we just had a very long conversation. And, you know, I remember kind of towards the end of the conversation, I, I still didn't really know why I was there. And then he just said to me, look, I've kind of been following your career over the last while and I'd be interested to see would you be interested in coming in with us um, next season he explained a little bit about uh, what he was doing they had won three in a row at that stage that's what I was just thinking that you would have been three in a row and this showed that his drive to get on to go and complete what ended up in his six in a row but there was no complacency. He was looking for new elements, even at the end of three years, yeah. something different to take into the future. Yeah, but that's what winning takes, you know. Yeah. It's, if you want, you can win, and I've seen it, you know, um, even at Cork City, say, when, like we had relentlessly pursued that from 2014, 2015, 2016, and eventually got there in 2017. But it, it's a really interesting thing, and it was something I really learned and, and reflected on at that time, was once you win it and you've pursued it for so long, like for me, let's go again, you know, we're ready to go, let's, let's come on, we have to do this again. Um, and that's why I think real... The real legacy of the team is is the number of championships or the number of trophies that you can win, particularly consecutively, because the hardest thing to match in pre-season the next year is the hunger that you had the year before to do what you did. And like that hunger with Cork City was there for four years. And like I said, we got up in the morning, it was the first thing we thought about. Um, how do we catch them? And... And then when you get there... Sorry, the them being Dundalk, Dundalk at this station. Yeah. Yeah. And like when you get there, it's like this massive weight off your shoulders. It's a massive relief. It's a massive elation. It's like just an incredible feeling. So how do you go again then? Not everybody had it. Yeah. Not Some people had achieved what they set out to do. And that was it. They had hit their ceiling. And that was, for me, a really interesting piece. Like, there was some that were ready, wanted to go again, wanted to push, push, push. And some were just like, oh, my God, I've done it. This is what I set out to do. Um, And then it made me realise that's the dynamic. That's... Because it's it's a cliche. The minute you succeed, that's your most vulnerable point. You're closest to failure at that point. It's even on the pitch, when you score a goal, you're most vulnerable immediately afterwards Absolutely. to conceding one. So that's, for me, that's what was... And at the time, I didn't know it. I could see it, but I couldn't really explain it like. So what did you do for Dublin and for how long? So for Dublin, I was in for that year. Um, so my job really was to be part of the analysis of, of the opposition Um Dublin have an incredible backroom team. And I suppose I was there to bring a different lens to just to see what I saw and maybe some of the principles that we applied in soccer might transfer to uh, Gaelic football. And they did and some didn't because like in Gaelic football, there's no offside. So the timing of the runs, you can make decoy runs and all that. For me, it was really interesting. Um, And um, I, I felt that there was definitely things that you used in soccer that you could apply in Gaelic football um, and then during the games you'd be looking at the matchups um, were the matchups right were they wrong were they favourable were they not um, and then there was other things that um, Jim would monitor in the game that I would have monitored as well and you know you would just communicate that to everybody involved so it was um, like for me again it was a real learning curve curve because you're in a different team culture a different team environment a winning culture um but also in that environment the hunger was there everyone had it and if you didn't have it you wouldn't be there um and that's why it was such a, a big learning curve for me as well because it helped me to see that once you've got the success what you need to do in order to regenerate that again and again and again and and that's the thing like because the minute you win there's a target on your back everyone everyone's pursuing you and it's easier to chase than it is to lead from the front 
and be the one being chased. Um, because if you're the one being chased, you're into that space of you have to do things that maybe you didn't do before. You have to take players into that vulnerable space where you're asking them to improve. They're already the best, but you're still asking them to improve. So you have to see more for them. Um, and that for me was the really interesting piece there. And, and as a coach that I learned is how to maybe how some of the things that you need to do to sustain success as opposed to achieving it and then dropping off. Um, and because that, that it, it is relentless and high performance sport is, it, it is so relentless. It's like literally you only ever have temporary possession of the baton. So what does it look like after you've had it? Um, times always get faster. Performance, like, I mean, even looking at the World Cup, the, the teams, you know, the, 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 the running that players are doing in a game hasn't changed. The volume hasn't. But the intensity has, you know, the, the sprinting and the high speed running has increased by 16 to 19 percent in 2022 versus 2018. That's massive. Just referencing that book that I mentioned earlier on Barca that Simon Cooper wrote, I mean, he was writing about Barcelona players not necessarily running as much as other teams because it's also structured with the high press that they do their sprints further up the pitch. I mean, look at Lionel Messi. He hardly ever presses, or well, he does actually fun of press and he does sprint, but only in very short bursts and at controlled times. Yeah, but uh, I suppose can you only get away with that when you're at a certain level? <laughs> that when you're at lower levels, you have to do more hard work and be more athletic to compensate for the lack of technical ability in your feet, and also perhaps for the lack of the vision that the very top players have. Like the, the, it was really interesting during the World Cup. I got to see Argentina. I actually most of their games, but for the Croatia game, I was pitch level. So I, I when mean, he did Guardiola when he went down the wing, I, I, he literally was about twelve feet away from me when because he did that. Because I've seen the video from the ground level from somebody who took it, and it was just—it was wonderful to watch on yeah. TV from the normal position. But when you see what he did, yeah. and to get to the byline and to come back, yeah, it's it's his explosiveness, it's his change of pace, and like that's what I love. Like that, that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see. What is it that he does on the pitch that makes him so different? Like, how is he so difficult to mark? Because when you're watching on TV, you, you see an amount of it, but you don't actually see, like, what I, what I learned from being with Northern Ireland when I could watch Ronaldo interacting with some of our players, or with, with the Northern Irish players, um, you, you learn that. But with, with him, like, it was the way he drew the defender in. Like, he, he, he'd slow down going into it and then he's just gone he just as soon as he has the defender flat-footed stopped almost he's gone change of pace gone and he has that half a yard and that's all he needs but it's the way he moves and the way he uses his shoulders his arms his back you know the way he uses his body in those interactions to protect the ball to draw you in to get your foot at the tiniest angle that he knows he can get away from you but if an opposition analyst tells your team this is what he does, there's no way of stopping it, is there? Well, no. Like, I mean, it's, it's how do you, you, you know, you nearly need to line players up. So after he does the first one, you've got, you know, you've got backup. But, um, or you just try and stop him getting on the ball. You, you, yeah. you stop, stop it at source, um, which again can be a tactic. But he's so clever the way he moves and the way he doesn't move. Sometimes he just doesn't move and he opens the passing lanes as a result. But it was, it was really interesting to, to kind of see that, but also how his teammates played for him and wor the work that they did in order to free him up. So that selfless decoy running, dragging players out of spaces so that he, you don't, and, and the thing is, you don't even necessarily, they don't even play into his feet necessarily. They'll play into a space that they know he can get into. So it can, and that's another thing 
you know, playing to feet is grand, but if you can play into space that another player can anticipate and see and get there. Yeah, when you're playing to feet, it's playing into the space in front of your feet that you're moving into yes. so that you can continue in a forward motion because it's so frustrating to watch football at times when a player going forward has to check or has to go back because the ball isn't played into the yeah, space Yeah, so they're running from deep. Yeah. You're just playing the ball in behind and they've got three yards to make up and they're in, you know. One of the reasons that I asked you to do this podcast now was, of course, the focus that there's going to be on the Irish team going to the World Cup. First time a women's team has actually qualified. So is this going to be a starting point, you think, that hopefully we'll get many more girls and women playing the game? That if it's not going to be the same excitement realistically as 1990 and the Jack Charlton era, could it still be significant enough that it's going to bring an awful lot more girls into the game and then keep them there as well? I think absolutely. Um, I remember uh, Euro 88. I was 12. Um, I remember the Irish team stayed in Finstown House Hotel and my mum actually worked there. Um, so we used to, me and my sister used to go up and we'd watch the, the you know, meet the players and used to steal cakes for them sorry borrow cakes for them from the the kitchen you know they loved an L cheesecake go in and get a slice of cheesecake um, back in the day you wouldn't get diet, diet wasn't the big <laughs> thing with that Irish team <laughs> I wouldn't put myself down as their chief nutritionist now for sure but um, no it was um, listen they were magic times um, and I, I remember distinctly looking at that and the way the mood of the country changed and it just uplifted people and it gave people hope. Like it just, for me, that's probably what I fell in love with with the game was that it just made me see another way. It's, it, it made you see that you could achieve something as an underdog. You don't have to, you might not have the same as everybody else, but it doesn't mean you can't get there, you can't achieve. And Ireland did that, beating England 1-0 in that first game. I mean, it was just incredible that the mood and then Ronnie Whelan's uh, shinner against, against the USSR and, uh, you know, the heartbreak then, like the, the emotional roller coaster. And now this year, and I remember the impact that had on me in terms of what I could see for my own future. Um, and there's a whole generation of girls now that are going to get to see that. And they're going to see, like when I was that age, I never saw a woman in football, never saw a girl, you know, or women playing in stadiums, let alone full stadiums or coaching on the sidelines. This whole generation are going to see women playing unbelievable football in sold out stadiums broadcast all over the world with female coaches on the sidelines. I mean, I know the impact that Euro 88 had on me. I can't even begin to imagine the impact that that's going to have on a whole generation of girls now. And I love it. I think it's brilliant. There'll be female pundits on, on RTE um, broadcasting it. There'll be, you know, there, there's the visibility piece is going to be so different. And those girls are growing up now that it's normal to see this and that it's normal to have aspirations and to see themselves as having a career in football and those opportunities are there for them now and I love that I absolutely love that I just hope that resources wise um, clubs can facilitate these girls and can we accommodate them and make sure that there is space for them um, to play Because has the GA sort of stolen a march around the country in making facilities available and encouraging sport for girls? Yeah like I think you know like I remember when I was growing up, there was no girls' teams. You know, I had to play in a boys' team up until I was 12. And then when I started school, I was in begging my metalwork teacher, Mr Grimes, please, 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 in Lucan Community College, can we have a girls' team? And he's like, look, if you get 18 girls, I'll coach you. I came back, I back to him at lunchtime. I had a list of 18 girls. Um, and we, we got that team up and running and... and but he said yes. And I, I often wonder, Matt, if he had said no, how much of an impact would that have had on my life? Like he was the first person that gave me an opportunity to play football with other girls. And, and the, the, like, I just wonder what could have happened if he said no, what would my life look like? Because the girls in that team, 
I remember a few years ago, four of us were on the sidelines watching our four daughters playing in the same team on the same pitch that we grew up playing on. And it was just a kind of a, a magic moment, you know. And so I, I, I really think the smallest things can make a big difference um, in football. You know, two, two jumpers on a ball and a field. But like, I'd like to think we can get beyond that now. Um, you know, that's where you learn your street football, your, your little take-ons, your 1v1s, your tricks. Um, we probably don't see enough of that actually nowadays. Um, but I, 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 I really hope that Irish society and the Irish government and all of Irish sport embraces the opportunity to give girls and women the opportunities to do something that they love because on, I'm telling you they're going to love it they, like the, you can see it already in Tallis Stadium the girls that love it like we have a responsibility to, to, to change the landscape and make sure that those fields of dreams are actually places that they can go and play that they're not just in their minds that we can make it real for them Is football a game that really is suited to women? And the reason I ask that, right, and don't look at me as if I've been sexist here, right, but I sometimes look at, I would have concerns, for example, even for boys and men playing rugby because of the impact injuries that they get. And I would have had a daughter who would have played a little bit of rugby as well as football earlier and would have become anxious for her and glad in some respects that she gave it up because of the dangers involved in it. And... Certain sports certain may suit people better. Is football, in some respects, the perfect sport for young girls and young women to actually be playing in? Or also, does it actually could they also be vulnerable? Because it does show with the I think the Irish squad lower limb injuries. It does seem to be an enormous amount of cruciate knee injuries and various other injuries. I did it twice myself. I did it first when I was 19 and I did it again when I was 27. And it does happen to men, but there does seem to be stats to suggest that in football there do seem to be more lower limb injuries yeah, for well women. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think, you know, it's actually one of the things that when I went to the Chelsea women's team, um, it was something that always really resonated with me from Emma Hayes was, you know, we have to train females as female athletes, not as small men, because their bodies are different. Everything about a female body is different to the male body. You know, you have the menstruation cycle, which is hugely impactful. If you can manage that, then you and you can. The USA team did it brilliantly. And this is something that's only been spoken about publicly in sport in the last Absolutely. few years, which is extraordinary. It when is you think extraordinary. About it. Yeah, and then not only that, you have. The, the whole thing about the white shorts and, and that, mm. like little changes but make a big difference because it was almost like a taboo subject and girls were like, you know, so many girls dropped out of sport play when they were teenagers because there was no facilities for them to get changed. There was no, you know, these things were just unspoken about and they thought it was just them and it wasn't because the reality is every woman or every girl in the group was feeling the same. Um, so the lads might go out, as I remember from my own time playing football, you might be out in Time and Park in a, literally in a corrugated iron shed tugging off at the side of it or whatever yeah. and the lads don't mind doing that but women and girls will be far more conscious with good reason. Big time. Like, I I remember going to games when I was a kid to play and there was no shed. Yeah. It was a field. Yeah. And, like, for lads, that's okay. If they need to go to the toilet, they can go. But girls, we were creating little human shields around the person who needed to go to the toilet in the bush. And then you'd take it in turns, you'd rejoin the shield and the next one would go. That's okay up to a point, but at certain times of the month, that's not on. Yeah. That's not on. So it's no wonder so many girls drop out. And this is, that comes back to that facilities piece, why it's so important. But go back to the physiological so the makeup physiological and, and piece. whether football is a well, good sport for girls and women I to think play. It, I think all sports, you know, to have girls and boys involved in sport is great. It teaches you, you know, for heart health, for cardiac health, for brain health, for everything, learning to win, learning to lose. But I think with with females, where we're getting to now is we're actually starting to get research and information to benchmark the women's game off the women's game um, and off female performance. Because if you think about all the training techniques that have been developed and the standard that you should reach has all been traditionally been benchmarked off the men's game. Like they're even talking about now the way the football boot is manufactured. It was styled to the white man's foot. 
you know, players of other, even male players of other ethnicities have had difficulties with boots and having to get them stretched or having to get them made individually, you know, especially for their feet. So, and the woman's foot is a different shape as well. So the women, why don't, we should have football boots for women's feet. So I think this... Do we not have them? No. And this is this is where I'm saying it. This is all coming now because the research is finally there, um, and all these things now that the, the techniques, the training techniques, the benchmarks that you're benchmarking performance are now going to be benchmarked off the women's game, not what the men's game is. And women, the female performance metric, trying to match that or. or as in benchmark off that. So I think we're moving into a space now where it's really changing and that the women's game can really stand alone and that development procedures and practices and and how you train your athletes and how you develop them is specifically geared to female performance and the female body. And I think that's great to see that now starting to happen. And the more that happens, the more we're going to see the the women's game and not just football but all female sports really really escalating we didn't get into it earlier and i do want to get to it now this whole thing about being a woman in a man's sporting environment which you've done you wrote a really fascinating piece for the irish times and it was a, a, in relation to a very difficult subject it was the death of ashley murphy But you wrote about men, that there were three types of men. I'm going to read this to you because I would like you to elaborate upon it. There are men and boys who believe they are superior and entitled to behave in a way that threatens, abuses and scares women. Then there are men and boys who don't behave that way, but say and do nothing, who witness, but let it go. Lastly, there's a minuscule few who stand up and say, no, that or this is not right. Tell us a little bit more if you're thinking behind that. Um, I think I wrote that at a a very emotive time um, for a lot of people in Ireland. Um, It was a very challenging time and a very difficult uh, story to to have to see in the news. Um, And I wrote it from a place probably of experience um, that, you know, Maybe throughout my football journey, listen, I knew it was a tough environment. Um, and listen, I'll be honest with you, there was days where I thrived and there was days I literally just had to survive because of the sometimes the challenges that you faced. And, you know, the longer you, you're in the environment, I learned that, you know, sometimes you were facing challenges that other coaches in the, in the group weren't facing and you were only facing them because you were female um and I kind of that that those levels of behavior normalized but then when I you know got older and became more experienced and maybe a little bit you know st- you know stronger at dealing with them and saying no I, sometimes I was in situations where somebody would pass a remark and there's other guys there that you you know that you guys that you value and guys that you have a lot of respect for, and they just let you be on your own and have to try and deal with that situation. They didn't back you up, like, or they might come to you afterwards and go, "Listen, that was really out of order. He shouldn't have said that." And you're going, "Why didn't you say it then? Why didn't you like?" Do you know? So, um, and then there's there's other people then that you know sometimes just had your back and just said, "Do you know what? That's not acceptable in this." in this group or you know you won't speak to about one of my staff members in that way um and over the course of my career I suppose I started to learn the difference between the three because sometimes you have unconscious biases and you have people that say things and they don't necessarily realize that it's just not a great thing to say so you have that but then I also learned that there was certainly people with very conscious biases and they were doing it deliberately maybe to derail you or to try and make it difficult for you so different some cases it might be just ignorance yeah but sometimes it's malicious yeah absolutely and you know there definitely is a difference um um, because you can make somebody aware of it and then they're doing it again or you know or then they're just doing it because they want to try and derail you or they want to make it difficult for you um and, and that was probably a part of the the whole journey that I never anticipated you know that wasn't on any of the courses how you deal with that I can tell you (laughs) 
Um, but um, but look, I'm very fortunate that I have really good people around me. I've got exceptional mentors, um, particularly through the, the League Managers Association in England. Um, and they've been a great support to me. Um, and I've learned as well that, you know, through some of the work I do outside of football in different environments, um, when I do some keynotes or I, I go in to do some work with different uh, teams and, like I said, in different environments, um, I've, I've realised that a lot of the females in those rooms are coming up to you afterwards going, I thought you were talking about me. I thought you were, that's exactly what I have to deal with. And it made me realise that, you know, it, it's probably endemic in our society, um, some of these biases and behaviours. Um, and there is an education piece needed. And it's not that you're banging a big feminist drum and, and all the rest of it. It's just about being a good person and just, you know, listen, I get it. High performance sport is extremely competitive. There are people who want your job there, you know, so it, it is, it's, it, it can be a highly competitive environment. But at the same time, you know, if people use your gender or your ethnic minority as the thing to go after. Yeah, but Lisa, it does strike me you have had to be strong because that passage that I read out from mm-hmm. that Irish Times piece you into male environments where often when it's men together in a sporting environment, there's a large degree of testosterone yeah. and showing off to each other and often younger, immature men as well, perhaps. So you've actually had to go into the middle of that and be to an extent a pioneer because there are so few women who have actually done it anywhere and you are the first in Ireland to have operated at a senior level in relation to sport like that. Yeah, look, I think there's definitely been females who've gone into these environments before. Um, and, you know, for me, I always tried not to think about the fact that I was female. For me, it was about doing the job I was there to do. And I learned pretty quickly that, um, you know, sometimes people would pass remarks or sometimes the crowd might be singing a lovely song about a certain part of your body and you're going, grand, okay. <laughs> this is as you're walking down the sideline towards the dugout or whatever and yeah, you suddenly get... or taking the warm-ups or whatever and, you know, your players are going, that's outrageous, like, you know. But, like, I think, you know, for me, the biggest thing was learning to manage my own reactions to these situations because, you know, when you're young in your career and and, and you're learning and you're... You probably feel a little bit vulnerable in certain environments. Um, you, you kind of, you probably accept a little bit more than you should. And I certainly did. I certainly did. <laughs> the benefit of hindsight. But at the same time, when you, when you grow and you, you, you get the experience and you, you develop your level of confidence. And, but you also learn, um, you know, you get, you get that level of support from the group that you're with as well. Because people respect you. If they see that you're taken you know, hits that you shouldn't necessarily be taking and it's just because you're a woman, but they still want you there because you're good at your job. That actually increases the levels of respect that they can have for you. But I also noticed that the assumptions that people sometimes make that people thought you were the physio. Oh, if you're <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like even the Cork City lads used to get great crack out of that. We'd be playing in Europe or whatever and the, you know, the opposition physio or doctor would come down and go well, can I see your physio and they'd be like oh there she is over there you know and they'd be laughing you know they'd come over and go are you the physio and the lads would be having great crack over um and listen there's you know there's there's the crack as well and I hate the word banter because it's it's so open and it, it's so open to interpretation but um you, you can have a little bit of crack like you know it's, it's where it's not it's not you know there's nothing malicious in it it's fun stuff but um and like even when I, I, I was over doing a, a recce for a game and I went to watch the the team like when I was going like I would drink the water I would eat the ice I would eat the food and if it had any kind of a negative impact on my body I would make sure okay we make the ice with bottled water or we ask them to do uh, that hang on now remember what you told me earlier the female body's different to the male body yeah, so you might yeah. be act- but 
but it was these little things like when you fly in for a European game you're potentially only in 36 hours 36 to 48 hours before and we knew we had to have our best players on the pitch so anything that could impact performance you know even in terms of like I, I in this ground I, I went up and I was introduced to their manager and he was like oh Miss Fallon you must be the travel agent and I was like yeah sort of <laughs> I thought I'd been to watch them the night before and I was down at the pitch and I was like I wanted to have a look at the pitch because they had like 24 hour daylight and the grass is different it's not lush like it is here it's kind of strawy so I wanted to see what footwear and stud sizes the lads would need to wear um, He's very different for the detail aren't you? I, well yeah <laughs> I, well look th- these, are, these, these are the details that can matter you know you'll, yeah. that's the thing about high performance sport you'll never know if you win a game or whatever you'll never know what the one thing was or the two things were that actually made the difference it's, but it's something so you have to be, you have to consistently believe in the process and that detail and adhere to it and live by that standard and then you can trust that you'll get that margin at some point so when you got down to the pitch so when i got down to the pitch i, I he said i said look do you mind if i go down and have a look at the pitch and and he was like not at all don't mind us we're training and they were like we were playing them in 3 days they were practicing set Who pieces. Who did you think you were? He thought I was the travel agent. <laughs> so I was literally down there. And I mean, I'm going back. This is pre-Bielsa days now. So I'm down there and I'm taking photos and videos. And he must have, obviously, for the travel brochure. <laughs> and, um, and, and like, I, I went back and, you know, I'm, I'm playing the clips to the lads. And they're going, I said, so when he puts two hands up, that's the decoy. This guy, that's the outswinger. This guy will make the block. And, you know, and the lads were laughing, going... Jesus, like, and I was like, oh, they thought I was the travel agent, you know. What result did you get in the end? We didn't win. We didn't. <laughs> it was against KR Reykjavik. However, we learned a lot. And what we learned that year from Europe, I mean, it was crazy when we went over. Like, there was, they were supposed to provide you with cases of water. There was no water. We turned up for training and the kit man had to go knocking on nearby houses to get water bottles filled. And this sounds like an, an Icelandic version of Saipan. Oh, no, listen, I mean, it, this, but this is the stuff. Like, this, when you got into Europe, we were naive. Like, we were going, yeah, we'll give you this and we'll give you that. And then you go there and they're going, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And then, but we learned that year. And, I mean, there was another year where we were going to um, another country and... They were pushing us to have this hotel and we were like, no, nah, no, we, we, there's another hotel that we prefer. It's a bit quieter. And they were like, no, 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 no. They were adamant we would stay in this hotel. So I was like, and it was, it was, you know, the other hotel was smaller. It wasn't probably at the same standard as, as the one they wanted us to go for. And I just, you know, the way you just have a gut instinct. And I remember going, they were all really pushing us to go there. And so I looked back at who had played there last year and in the previous rounds. And I contacted three of them. And all three, the air conditioning on their floor had failed the night before the game. Remarkable. <laughs> Just a massive coincidence. <laughs> but like, I mean, this is, what, this is what I'm saying. Like, these are the little things that, this is where the attention to detail came in. And for me, that was, that was potentially a massive margin. But you mightn't have won the game in the end, or you might have. But if you didn't, at least you could come away knowing you had done everything to make sure that you had the best chance of getting the result. Could Because a lot of these teams, massive resources, you know, you're talking millions of budgets and, you know, we could never match that. And technically, physically, their players are, you know, probably beyond a level of the players that we have. But so that your responsibility there is to look after every detail can you get a margin and you know look we 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 didn't win that particular game but i mean the chances of us winning it were were, were small anyway but it was just that's the kind of stuff so you know those little things and like even over there like i think they were you know the fact that i was a female they were going oh no like you you know they're you know uh, yeah, look, it's it, look, it's it's an it's an incredible industry. Um, I love it. I, I clearly, absolutely love it. You clearly do love it. I'm not trying to talk you out of a job that you clearly love, but you did sort of lay a hint a little bit earlier that you might be able to use all this again by returning to the grass. 
So do you see yourself as a first team coach again in either men's or women's football or even as the manager? Yeah, look, I think um, I think the one thing I've learned in football is to never close anything off because, you know, the opportunities I've got and the the roles I've, I've progressed into, I think, you know, I probably couldn't have imagined it in my wildest dreams, even though I probably did dream of one of them. Um, and uh, so, you know, that Sherry Lungi movie back, or the, you know, the programme, The Manageress back in 1989. That was the first time I saw a woman in football. Yeah. And it definitely, obviously, somehow planted a seed. Can see, can be, can't see, can't be. Um, and uh, so... Look, that, that's the one thing I've learned about this industry is, you know, you never know what way it will take you. And I'm very open to that. But what I do do and one of my golden rules is to be really focused on the role that I'm in. Um, and I've always been that way. I've never looked ahead to what's going to come next because in football you're only three games away from the sack anyway so you know long-term planning is a, is a bit of a luxury often but um but yeah no so so for me what I always do is I focus where I am and I just give it everything and then what's tended to happen is my next opportunity has has generally come as a result of that um and you know, like I said, I'm very fortunate to have had the opportunities that I've got and the game has taken me to a level I could never have dreamed of. I mean, being in the Lucille Stadium for the World Cup final, sitting there with the technical study group, picking, you know, trying to figure out who was going to get the golden ball and up for the tournament and you're looking at Mbappe and Messi and this unbelievable game unfolding between Argentina and France and I was sitting there and I just took a minute after the game finished level and it was going to extra time I just I remember I had a, Jürgen Klinsmann just looked at me and the two of us were like wow like wow like like what and um and I just after that I just I just took a moment just to to breathe it in just to take it in the moment and I was like like this is incredible. Like this is awesome. Um, it's what something I could never have imagined of. in my wildest dreams. You're sitting there with Jorgen Klinsmann, German World Cup winner. Uh, yeah, great names. It was just you're sitting there as part of this group, and you're going, "This is unbelievable!" Like this is unbelievable. And and they're going, "Lise, what do you think of this game? Or what do you, what do you think of that goal? And what do you think of what you did there?" And I was just like this, like, well, where do you go from here? Like, it was, it was, it was just, a, it was a, it was an incredible moment. And to, till the day I die, you know, I, I'll always, I can always close my eyes and have, like, listen, I, I've, I've, I've got some incredible memories that I have locked away now that can never, you know, they're just, it's, it's incredible to have. And, um, and for me, it's like. That's what I'm saying. I don't know where the game is going to take me next. Lisa Fallon, thank you so much for joining me for Magnified. And that's it for today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. I hope you enjoyed Lisa Fallon, who is a voice, of course, who I think should be familiar to you as well from our excellent analysis and commentary of football in the media. There are plenty of other of these Magnified interviews for you to enjoy. Uh, they're from various people from various different backgrounds and walks of life, all of whom are successful people and telling their stories of how they got to where they are. And we do it in connection with Strategic Power Connect, so our thanks to them again for our assistance in putting together this magnified series. So, if you've enjoyed it, go maybe check out some of the previous ones, and we'll have more coming in the weeks to come. From me, Matt Cooper, thank you for listening. Goal Out presents Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by Strategic Power Connect, renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go loud. Sounds better with us.